the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Nature's Factor Carpet Cleaning Expert, Shayla James. What makes Nature's Factor better than the older carpet cleaning processes? Older systems saturate your carpet, leaving your space unusable, sometimes for up to a day because of their long dry times, plus leaving you with the risk of fungus and the dangerous chemicals left in your carpet. With Nature's Factor, our quick dry time makes your home or office space usable almost immediately, while our green solutions eliminate the possibility of fungus and are perfectly safe for your children and pets. Nature's Factor, carpet cleaning for the 21st century, 831-3535. And now a word from one of our Bible Live sponsors. Our company is so proud and excited to sponsor the Bible Live. As a businessman, I have to make decisions every day about how to best invest time, personnel, and resources for the best return and results. The scriptures say there are two things on earth that will last forever, God's word and the souls of people. It's my hope that you, your family, your church, and perhaps even your business will pray about giving a tax-deductible donation to the Bible Live at this time. Together, let's expand this historic broadcast of the scriptures to other cities across our nation. A sound investment for both time and eternity. You can donate by credit card at the Bible Live website www.thebiblelive.com or mail your check for the Bible Live to P.O. Box 18888 that's P.O. Box 18888 San Antonio, Texas 78218 I want you to meet my friends at the Laptop Specialist pioneers since 1982 in serving the military, business and personal computing needs of our city Our ministry depends a lot on our computers. And whether it's repairs, service, upgrades, or even the purchase of a new machine, the James family and their great staff keep our equipment working, freeing us to do what we're called to do. Go to thelaptopspecialist.net or call 344-4563. 344-4563 for their two locations. The Laptop Specialist. Welcome to the Bible Live Quiz Hour. It's time to test and grow your knowledge of the Bible, have fun, and win valuable prizes and resources for yourself, your family, your church, or favorite ministry. Here's how it works. Listen to the Bible Live Scripture Reading Program. Weeknights at 8. Not a program about the Bible, the Bible itself. Hear a 15 to 20 minute reading each weeknight. The entire Bible every year. Then on Sunday nights at 9, join us here for the Bible Live Quiz Hour. Sophie will ask questions from the past week's Bible Live readings. You call in with the correct answers and you win. It's just that simple. So get out your Bible, put on your thinking cap, and hit that speed dial. Because here's the host of The Bible Live. Your Apache Indian scout through the book of books, Sophie Dollar. 
Here I am, Soapy in the house. Jacob is here with me and the uh seated across from me. Can I hear you, Jacob? Talk to uh, me. I can I All cannot right. hear you. You're good. Well, I'll I'm on. I don't know why you can't hear me. Uh I don't know either. We'll figure that out. John, for some reason, Jacob can't hear me. He he does not have the blessing of hearing my dulcet tones. I, I thought maybe that was a reaction to last week. Uh, oh, yeah. Well, I tell you what the reaction to last week was. We had 300 people go to the website to, to hear again our uh, our uh, debate about uh, certain things we ran into in the passages uh, this last week. But uh, we're so grateful for all of you who went to the kslr.com website, and you can go there and hear any of our programs, the Monday through Friday programs as well. You can hear any of the readings as we make our way through the um, as we make our way through the all the books of the Bible. Um, you can um, J- John is here trying to fix Jacob up so he can hear himself and hear not so much hear himself, but he wants to hear me. That's the amazing thing. So uh, they're taking care of that. Let me uh, give you some of the questions we have picked out for you tonight. We have made our way through um, the book of 1 Kings. We finished up the book of 1 Kings this last week, starting at chapter 18. And then we went right on into the book of 2 Kings, which is appropriate because they were indeed one book in their initial writing. And that's that's the way we treat them. We read through them uh, as one book. So uh, we have read about a very interesting time of history for me. Uh, I, I really, I think this time of history is more pivotal than most people. I think uh, as we grow up, I think our understanding of the uh, Hebrew scriptures here and of the time of the kings, uh, I am not a great admirer, of course, of Ahab and Jezebel. But I, I tell you the truth, uh, Jacob, I kind of think they are, I consider them probably, uh, in some ways they were, they were the most influential, influential pair. Uh, and I've got some questions for you tonight about the Jewish view of these kings and of the time of the kings. Um, but Ahab and Jezebel had a tremendous influence. And, of course, Ahab was a very weak person, a weak king, and he was very highly influenced and very and wrongly, but greatly influenced by Jezebel, who was the daughter of the high priest of Baal in uh, Phoenicia. This is true. And so, I mean, she really had uh, an agenda. I mean, she came on, and they had a plan uh, and, and I'm wanting to ask you, when we talk about Ahab and Jezebel and, and all of these different kings from the time of Jehosh- uh, I mean, I mean, Jeroboam and Rehoboam, when the kingdom divided after Solomon, was there always an emphasis and a hope and a desire to reunify the tribes? Oh, absolutely. I kind of... I've kind of felt that. I, I was unaware of that for many years. Oh, and, absolutely. And then some years later, just, just some years ago, reading through the scriptures, maybe four or five years ago, I became to the understanding, I thought, wow, I could see that uh, uh, King Hezekiah, uh, some of the other kings involved, I think they 
they were going out of their way. They were trying very hard. And sometimes we see them compromising their own faith and compromising their own um, uh, the following after God. And sometimes I got a kind of a sense that they were, in some way, they were doing it to try to, in some way, uh, facilitate or encourage uh, the reunification of the tribes. And and I think that Ahab and Jezebel took advantage of that impulse. Uh, to to intermarry their daughter. We'll read about one of their influential daughters uh, who became the only queen that, that uh, Israel ever had. And uh, so anyway, to me, this is a fascinating time of history when we study the effects of the lives of these two people. And especially if you bring it forward, if you start thinking about our king, our, our presidents of the United States, the leader of a nation and what their faith and what their belief system, what their integrity, their morality, how it reflects and reverberates into the culture. Uh, and we might even ask about the, uh, in certain kings, whether it was uh, the first uh, Bush, uh, George W. Sr. or George Bush Sr. or George W. Bush or Clinton or uh, Obama even today, what king of Israel do they most remind you of in terms of their influence? And I, I think it's a legitimate and, and even actually a helpful question uh, when you think of them. Now, we're not Israel. We don't have that same promise of God uh, over Israel in terms of the covenant to bless them and use them in the redemptive plan of God and so on. But we are still a country that was born uh, out of revival, out of, out of a spiritual impulse. Uh, God has greatly blessed and used this nation because of its affiliation with the message of the gospel, the message of the scriptures, uh, and the God of the Bible. And I, I think it's a legitimate thing to do to think about uh, these presidents that we have and their godliness and their character and, and kind of analyze their effect on the whole on the whole society, on the entire American culture. Would you uh, like to hear a funny story? Yeah, I think I would. Okay. It would probably be appropriate. Well, I, actually, um, the school I went to, one of the professors used to say, listen, if I ask a question and you can't answer it, then you, if you'll go ahead and substitute and list in order all the kings of Israel, I'll still give you credit. So that was always a safety net. If you memorize the kings of Israel, if you didn't know an answer to another question, you could just list those. Well, you know, I said something this week in the program that I thought I think is correct. And at one time I did the math and I thought I did it correctly. But I said that there were 22 kings of Israel in the north and 22 kings of Judah in the south. Mm -hmm. Is that accurate? Okay. Uh, it depends on how you're counting. Actually... You mean if I'm counting accurately or? <laughs> yes, uh, that's, uh, it depends on how you're counting, correctly or incorrectly. Okay. <laughs> uh, actually, there are certain things that delineate real kings. Like you mentioned at the beginning of the show, there's a lady that's going to be a queen. Uh -huh. She's not counted, though she's listed as being in power. I see. Like Herod would not be counted as a king of Israel because, first of all, he was from uh, Edomite. 
And secondly, he did very bad things. And you also have to be buried with the kings. Those are all requirements. Oh, and I do notice some of them are not buried. Yes. Yes. They don't meet all these requirements. They're not counted in the list. They may have appeared, either seizing power or done something, but they don't get counted. Well, I came up with my numbers simply by, I think, if I remember correctly how I did it, I just went through the list and counted them as they were mentioned. And I came up with 22 and 22, which I always thought was interesting because, of course, the the tribes in the north, Israel, those uh-huh. ten tribes, uh-huh. they didn't endure as long, uh, about 150 years less or you, something. You remember in uh, the quote, the book of Matthew, New Testament, remember in there in cha- chapter 1 of Matthew, it says uh, there are 14 and 14 and 14, uh-huh. right? Uh-huh. And one of the series, I think the second one is where it occurs with the king period. Is that right? Uh-huh. Now, if you read that, it says there are 14, but if you count them like you were, actually you come up uh, with 20. Is that right? Yes. Okay. But, so that means six are there who actually held power, but they're not legitimate kings, so they're not counted. That's how you get 14 in the second And you sequence. told me before how that was mentioned to uh-huh. even Solomon, uh, they could be a... a they can be a king of Israel, but not be a son of God? Is uh, you'll that find, that? actually, it was in the first portion of Kings that we read, when uh, David died, he says, and God later says to Solomon himself, if you'll always be a biological descendant, but you'll not be considered, quote-unquote, a son of God, unless you follow God's commandments. So Solomon might have been, and he was told by David himself, you'll find it actually in the very beginning of uh, 1 Kings, before when David dies. And after Solomon prays for wisdom, God comes and says, he actually, he actually says to Solomon, if you follow the commandments, you'll be my son. So it's a, there's two requirements. You must be a biological son, but two, if that makes you king, but that does not make you, quote-unquote, a son of God, unless you follow God's commandments. So you have to be biological and follow the commandments. That is a fascinating line of thought there, and I have to I have to, I have to, rethink that again, but I do remember it, and it makes sense to me. But I guess the point I was going to make is that if you just count the number of kings, I think they come out evenly at 22 each. Uh, well, it could I, be off one or I, more. I think that maybe how you're getting 22 is that there's a couple in there that actually enjoy uh, different names, which has a particular meaning. That's true as well. That's true uh, as but well. But actually, there was 20 in Judah. Okay. And in some of them as well, only reign maybe a month or two right. or something like a very, very short period right. of time. And, and there was actually one father and son that had joint Joint co-regency, yeah. exactly. And so there is a little bit of complication in the number. But I guess the only uh, the point that I do see clearly is that uh, the tribes in the north, uh-huh. the ten northern tribes, w- with the same number of kings but much shorter period, which I've always, uh, I've always, um, I've always considered the reason for that being that they were far more unstable because of the spiritual instability of their culture, having walked away from God and 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 using uh, a different priesthood besides the Levites. And the temple not being there, and all of the, all the spiritual compromise that went into the northern tribes, and their constant temptation by Phoenicia, by Assyria in the north, and so on, their constant temptation to go back to the gods, the the pagan and uh, uh, gods of uh, of the Canaanite people around them, that their time was less. Uh, they didn't endure as long as a nation. 
and uh, and their kings did not reign as long, generally speaking. So it's just a kind of a generalization that I had and made. And, you know, may I just interject one thought? Here? You certainly may. The Jews actually read the same book the Christians do. That's right. And what's fascinating is, is the Jews get the same message that the Christians do. There's no way. I listen to your show uh, several times during the week at night. Uh-huh. And at 9, uh, so you come on at 9.30, I 9.30 in the, uh, Monday through Friday. Uh, yeah. And that's when you're actually reading the Bible. Right. Uh-huh. So I gave, I just gave you a plug. Thank you. <laughs> no. Send me a bill. So, but what happens is Thursday night you said the most interesting comment. You said, I just don't get this. I just don't get this. Why would they do this after they had been you know, taken out of Egypt and all stuff? And I listened. I was sitting on the couch listening, and I thought, you know, I don't like that, but he's 100% right. <laughs> and so you are right. And so when they read the same book, you see, they get the lesson out of this. And there's two points I'd really like to make. One is that they get the lesson that this is the wrong thing to do. So you've learned your lesson. Don't do it anymore. That's one reason it's very difficult to reach Jews and say, well, no, this perhaps this is a religious thought you ought to consider, whether it's Christian or anything. Because they get to read the same book, they got the lessons. Oh no, we got T-shirts that says "Been there, done that," <laughs> and it says, you know, "Been there, done that." But, yes, exactly. Uh, so we, we, that's what happens. Now the second thing is the only reason that the Jews or the Christians have this to read and to teach us something is because the Jews wrote down their own uh, pimples and blemishes. That's right. And I don't know of really of any other society that told all their bad stuff. That is one of the most amazing and uh, and it sets it apart uh thing about the scriptures about the bible as a whole in fact because that that practice extends on into the new testament as well into the gospels we see peter denying the messiah we see paul not believing and and persecuting the church we Mm -hmm. see uh, over and over again we see the weaknesses that paul and barnabas getting in uh kind of a big fight on the first missionary journey about whether John can Mark can imagine, go with them or not. Can, can you, know? you really imagine Jews arguing among themselves? Can you imagine? <laughs> I can't imagine. They're such a, they just go along so easily with each other. Yeah. What did you say? Uh, Three Jews, six opinions. Six huh? opinions, whatever. Well, there we go. We've got some questions for you tonight, folks. We're going to open it up. And very interesting passage, this time of Ahab and Jezebel and the time of, of these this transition uh, uh, but I guess what I was trying to get to a while ago is that sometime I think these kings of both Israel in the north and uh, uh, Judah in the south, I was asking Jacob before the program, did they have an impulse? Do they have a, a, a desire to affect the reunification of the kingdom? The answer is not just yes, but positively, absolutely Constantly yes. yes. And I think if you bring that into the formula... Into the mix, as you right. consider these different kings of the different right. uh, of the north and the south, if you bring that right. impulse and that desire into right. it, you'll see some of the motivation as to why certain people did certain things. They seem to compromise their faith a little bit to maybe get along with the king in the north. Well, I'm going to even strengthen your proposition from again the book of Matthew. Do you realize? And it says, uh, Jesus, uh, he went down. And he came back, and there was, it was talking about Rahab, right? Yes. Okay. Now, that's one of those phrases that many unconcerned people just pass over. It means nothing to them. 
But in the Jewish thought, it's talking about the reason the statue is there is to show the what you would call the Messington tribes the way back to Israel. That's what that phrase is all about. What phrase? The phrase about in Matthew, and I'm sorry I don't have it with me. Where Jesus says, where it says he comes back and uh, he says there's uh, Rachel weeping. Oh yes, uh, yes, uh huh. Well, there's uh, that's remember, remember that was somebody Rachel was buried there. Was that when it was talking a little bit about uh, the? It wasn't. That's not what it was talking about when Herod killed the two-year-old children. Is it? No, no. That, uh, okay, uh, different. Remember, uh, uh, Rachel's husband buried her there. Okay. And that's by something called the King's Road or King's Highway. And that's the way the ten tribes were led away into slavery. Into slavery. And the reason that's there, so this is contemplation, believe it or not, it's kind of prophecy, that this would always be there to lead the ten tribes back so they'd know what road to take. And so you've got Jesus going down to Egypt and coming back, and it says he passed, it's about Rachel weeping. What that's about to the, to the novice reader just seems, okay, that's an interesting thought, but to the really attentive Jew, what it means is, I know the way back because there's the statue. I'm coming back on the same road that I was led away on. Well, that is connected to the exactly. Herod killing the children because it, uh-huh. is it when, they're, when they came back from Egypt? Jesus, remember he went down? As a, Joseph as a child. Joseph and Mary. Uh, uh, there you yeah. go, as a child. That's what I meant. Yeah. What he's doing is he's recreating the entire pattern of Israel's history. And he Amazing. comes back. Yeah. And the ten tribes were led on that away. So when you say, were they being reunited? Yes. And one of the prophecies from the Jewish idea is that the Messiah must reunite the entire 12 tribes. And so that's what it's telling you, that he's leading the 10 tribes back, so he's reuniting them. That's what it's oh, meaning to tell you. Oh, my lens. Yeah, it's a rich thought. It really is a very rich thought. Well, I've got to get around to giving some questions, yes. or someone's going to get mad at us again. Uh-huh. And we what only what have do you mean, us and again? <laughs> at you again, Jacob. <laughs> oh, Psalm 71 speaks of faith through all the seasons of life. Psalm 71 speaks of having faith through all the different seasons of a lifetime, illustrating the following biblical principle. Saving faith is faith that does what? Saving faith is faith that does what? Okay? Uh, It's not a quote, but when we talk about uh, faith that saves, it is faith that what? I hope it makes sense to you. If not, answer one of the other questions. <laughs> <laughs> According to Psalm 73, why should we not envy the wicked, though they seem to be prospering? Why should we not envy the wicked, even though they seem to be prospering? They seem to be driving the best cars and wearing the best clothes and, and having the most fun. Why should we not envy the wicked? According to Psalm 73, verses 17 through 20. And then let me give you at least a couple of questions from the book of uh, First Kings. In a cave at Mount Sinai, God spoke to Elijah in a gentle whisper, a still small voice, after, what, after three spectacular events. What were those three spectacular events? And Jacob, I expect you're going to have something to tell us about that experience that Elijah had. And if a person was looking for the answer, where would they find that answer? Uh, chapter 19, 1 Kings 19, verses 11 and 12. Uh-huh. So God spoke to Elijah in a gentle whisper, 
or a still small voice, we're used to that phrase, after three spectacular events, what were the three spectacular events? That's uh, one question. And here's another. Uh, according to Elijah, how would Elisha, that's with an S-H, how would Elisha know if he was supposed to be Elijah's successor? Elijah was talking to Elisha, and he said, you will know that you are supposed to be my successor if what? What was, what would be, uh, how would Elisha know that he had been chosen to be Elijah's successor? That's found in 2 Kings chapter 2, verse 10. 2 Kings 2. Uh, I 10. hear music. There's music. That means so, we've got to take uh, a quick real break. Quick, the, the phone number would be 210-340-9585. 340-9585. You know, I saw a piece of paper. You wrote that number wrong this last week, by the I way. I did? You're going to have to write it a hundred times on the chalkboard. Come back with us, folks. Don't go far away. We'll be right back after these brief messages. Hi, I'm Eric Galindo, training director for the FSI Training School. For individuals and businesses, we offer certification courses in CPR and first aid through the American Heart Association. And also the Vehicle Safety Inspector course for the Texas Department of Public Safety. Courses are available every week for your convenience. Call me, Eric, at 210-314-2615. That's 210-314-2615. What makes Rose Cleaners the best in dry cleaning? They do my laundry the way I like it. The wonderful customer service. Personal quality. I have some things I like done with my clothes that I ask for, and it's always done. They do good work. I just love Rose Cleaners. Very excellent customer service, and... uh... They've made me very happy since I've been here. They've got friendly employees when you walk in, and um, they haven't lost any of my clothes in 19 years. Rose Cleaners, serving San Antonio for over 20 years. Well, Elizabeth and I went to Express Lube, and our experience was fabulous. We got in and out of there in literally 20 minutes. When we went to work, we had got our oil done before. It could take us two hours. The service was very friendly. You can really trust them. They were super courteous. They vacuumed out the entire front of the car, which was surprising. I didn't expect to receive that kind of service. And their name is their game. Express Lube is accurate for the name of their store. And with 23 stores, there's an Express Lube near you. Dr. Stan Shelton, with offices at Loop 410 and Broadway, has taken care of the Dollar family, that's Suzanne and me plus our three children, for the past 25 years. Suzanne, tell the folks about our dentist. Well, like you say, Dr. Shelton is a dentist for a lifetime. He's got the latest technology. He's busy, but I've never had to wait. And I never dread going to the dentist. In fact, he and his staff are so personable that I actually rather enjoy it. Go to DrShelton.com or call 590-7878. Hi, this is Baron Wiley, and March 16th, 2000, was one of the greatest days of my life. That was one of ten days when I went to the Holy Land. One of ten days where I walked where my Savior walked, where I boarded a boat and floated through the Sea of Galilee, stood on the Mount of Olives where Jesus prayed, walked through the Kidron Valley like Jesus did when he went up to Jerusalem. I touched the Western Wall and looked up to the sky and prayed where millions have been praying to God 24-7 for over 2,000 years. I stood where King David stood, where he overlooked the old city. And on that spot, on March 16, 2000, I proposed to my future wife, Shan, the most life-changing, unforgettable week of my life. My dear friend, join Alistair Begg, KSLR listeners like yourself and other believers the week of October 24, 2015, and experience Israel with Genesis Tours. 
Travel with comfort and ease. Stay in four- and five-star hotels, and it's so true you will never read the Bible the same way again. Experience Israel this fall. All the details at KSLR.com. is the Bible Live with Sophie Dollar. Everybody sing along. Thanks for joining us tonight for the Bible Live quiz show. We've just given you a number of questions. If you'd like to answer any of them, you can give us a call, 340-9585. I want to add one other question to the one, two, three, four that we've given you, and that is this one. Godly King Jehoshaphat. That's who I was trying to think of, uh, Jacob. Godly King Jehoshaphat of Judah arranged for his son, Jehoram, to marry one of Ahab's daughters the only queen Judah ever had. What was her name? All right? It comes from 2 Kings chapter 11, verse 3. 2 Kings 11, 3. Godly King Jehoshaphat of Judah arranged for his son Jehoram to marry one of Ahab's daughters, the only queen Judah ever had. What was her name? And I was saying to you, Jacob, I think probably... Jehoshaphat's motive was probably one, a positive motive in that he thought maybe he could facilitate the reunification of the tribes. Uh, but it, as it turned out, it just, the influence of Ahab and Jezebel was so wicked and so evil that it just, uh, it, it, it wasn't enough, I guess, I, to, to, you know, Jehoram maybe wasn't strong enough to, as a spiritual leader or influencer or something to have caused that to happen. But anyway, uh, there's a dynamic there that I've kind of, in my mind at least, had in the mix that I think some of that was going on among these good godly kings who mistakenly tried to reunite the, the tribes just simply through politics, through uh, my son's going to marry your daughter and that's going to solve all the problems. Uh, but anyway, that we can. It we was can a common thing in it. Europe, also. You know, you'd have the. In fact, the modern-day queen and king of England, the Queen of England, is actually from originally from German stock. They 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 always intermarried, so there would not be wars between countries. Oh yeah, yeah. Well, that's the thing about kings and queens, I guess. I, I guess that's the reason the Apache and the, and the Native Americans we didn't have kings. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know what I'm talking about there, but. Uh, um, I guess we didn't have kings and queens, though, so that, uh, maybe there is something to it. I don't know. Anyway, folks, there you have it. Though. One, two, three, four, five questions. I hope you can uh, answer one of them. I'll go through them again real fast. Psalm 71 speaks of faith through all the seasons of a lifetime. Faith through all the seasons of a lifetime 
illustrating a basic biblical principle that saving faith is faith that what? what what's, what's the characteristic of saving faith? Uh, and then let's look at this from Psalm 73. Why should we not envy the wicked though they seem to be prospering? It's fr- found in Psalm 73, verses 17 through 20. Why should we not envy the wicked even though they seem to be prospering in so many ways? And then we go into the book of 1 Kings, chapter 19. Remember when Elijah... Uh, fled from, uh, he was fleeing from Jezebel after the great victory at Mount Carmel. Uh, uh, Elijah fled from Jezebel. I'll ask you another question. He fled down to a mountain. He went down to a mountain. It was a, it was a long trip for him. Uh, 40 days, 40 night trip, actually a long way from, uh, from where they lived. Uh, Elijah fled down from Jezebel down to what mountain did Elijah go to? I'll ask you that question as well. And then once he was at that mountain in a cave, God spoke to Elijah in a gentle whisper, or as we says in King James, in a still small voice. After three spectacular events, what were those three events that God uh, that happened that God did not speak to him? through those events but in the still small voice. Uh, a lot of people use that as a great sermon uh, passage. Uh, and maybe Jacob has some comments about it as well uh, tonight. According to Elijah, how would Elisha, with an S-H, how would Elisha know that he was going to be Elijah, with a J, Elijah's successor? What was the sign that he would, uh, that would, that would indicate that Elisha was going to be Elijah's successor. That's found in 2 Kings chapter 2, verse 10. 2 Kings 2.10. And then the last one was about the woman uh, who led Israel, right, Jacob? The only woman. Yes. Who, a godly king Jehoshaphat of Judah arranged for his son Jehoram to marry one of Ahab's daughters. Uh, and that daughter turned out to be the only queen Judah ever had. What was her name? And the answer is found in Second Kings chapter eleven, verse three. So there you have it. One, two, three, four, five, six questions now. If you can answer any of those and would like to call in and give us the answer, talk about it, or maybe ask us a question uh, or, or another comment, you certainly may do so. And people get prizes. They get three four zero ninety five eighty five, and yes. We are all caught up with our prizes, and so we've got a brand-new set of prizes to send out for folks, uh, and we'd love to send out our little prize package to you. It's about a $100 value to you, so uh, we hope that you'll enjoy them. There'll be a little help to your family uh, budget. and uh, But most of all, the great reward is getting into the Scriptures, digging a little deeper into God's Word. So give us a call, 340-9585, or if you're dialing long distance, 877-630-5757. If you're dialing long distance from anywhere in the continental United States, for those who may be listening via the Internet. And by the way, it is interesting that we got over 300 hits on the archived program this past week. Uh, over 300 folks, many of you perhaps, went to the program last week to, to listen to it again and to uh, 
kind of take, take sides. <laughs> and to take sides, maybe. It could be. Uh, but that was an invigorating, invigorating discussion that we had, Jacob. It really was. I, and you and I have continued that discussion through the week uh, as we talk about uh, the Scriptures and the Bible and what it means. We know it's a very difficult uh, it's a difficult jump. I tell you, the millions of Gentiles that have been brought into the faith because of the work of Jesus and the, the Messiah, and yet we have still the... The the, uh, the Judaism of, of of the scriptures of the Bible, and we know that it's a, it's a struggle, it's a stress. It has been for thousands of years for many to make that leap and jump from uh, the that uh, that teaching from the Hebrew scriptures and over into uh, once Jesus of Nazareth came and chained, claimed to be that Messiah. Uh, I guess that is it's more difficult than we think. There's so many uh, difficulties, I think, to the Jewish mind, and maybe you could speak to this more than I could. But one of the things I know for sure is that the whole concept of uh, a man being God. Remember, that was one of the concepts that, was it Caiaphas uh, or the, one of the priests at the Sanhedrin said, what need we more, what, what do we need any more witnesses? He, he's already, he, he's claimed to be God. And one of the ideas was that, it was just anathema. It was terrible, the concept that a man could become God. And that that was just totally, and that is so deeply ingrained into the uh, Jewish thought, in the, in the Jewish scriptures, that, uh, uh, that that was, they could not comprehend, could not get past that thought. And so uh, I can see how, uh, even for one like Saul of Tarsus, who became later Paul, these were very big obstacles. And I'm wondering, maybe, I mean, of course, God knew that. And maybe he had a purpose in this whole thing, in, that, in this process. You've talked to me often about that, Jacob, that who knows, maybe, it's, maybe it was a necessary step that, uh, that Israel would... Uh, was it you that pointed out to me in the New Testament where uh, in the, uh, that Israel was actually to some degree, blinded to give a time for the Gentiles? Uh, I did suggest that, uh, I know what you're talking about, I did suggest that, I don't think I used the word blind, I think Paul, in the book of Romans, uses uh-huh. that. Paul speaks of that, yeah. Uh, but I, uh, I, the idea is that the Jews didn't ever view themselves as being exclusively the people of God. Right. Uh, contrary to what I hear a lot of people say, quite frankly, they were always open to people joining Israel. Uh, of course, they had to have a certain requirement. You had to believe in God and it can't be a man. But um, so uh, uh, certainly that the idea and, was... And there's good reason for that. All around them, Israel being the only monotheistic religion <laughs> in existence... But all around them were these pagan, uh, uh, false religions where men were constantly claiming to be God. This is true. Even in the Roman Empire, the Caesar claimed to be God. Uh, Artaxerxes and Xerxes, I think, the Persian kings made a claim to deity. Even Nebuchadnezzar, I think, at some point claimed uh, godhood. And so there was this constant vigilance that not to adapt to give in to that the pagan religions, I can see the difficulty. Yeah, absolutely, and there is absolutely no doubt that when anybody would show up and say, "Oh yeah, we're 
uh, I'm God. They'd say, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And we ought to as well ourselves. Uh, and so I, I, I can see. And so we had, uh, we had good, a good time of discussion last week about it. We're, we're trying to kind of get down deep. And we're, we know every night we're talking to uh, thousands and thousands of you as Christian believers and followers of Jesus, the Messiah. Uh, you have bought into the Hebrew uh, revelation, the, the Hebrew God, Jehovah, the, the Hebrew scriptures, the Hebrew prophets, uh, the Hebrew Messiah himself. So we, we as Christian believers, some, some Christians are unaware of this, but we, our, our basis, our roots are Judaic. We we are in fact we have become to a great extent Jews, and in fact we have bought we have come into Israel as Paul states that clearly that we are we have become we've been grafted into spiritual Israel, and become a part of the people of God. And so uh, it shouldn't be too much of a of a shock to us. But the point is is and I think I've mentioned this to Jacob one time in our discussions, and it seemed to be a helpful thought is that. We're not talking about a man becoming God. That's, that never has been an aspect of even Christianity. That isn't the basis of Christianity is a man became God. It's that God became a man. And, uh, and of course, there are plenty of, plenty of openings and opportunities. God can do that. He, he says, I am that I am, or I will, become, I will be what I will be. Uh, God can, he told uh, Moses at, at uh Mount Sinai at the burning bush, uh, and, and so God became took on flesh. Not it's not about a man becoming God. It, it, that's that that's not understanding the concept of the Messiah of the incarnation at all. But God taking on flesh, as Paul describes in Philippians chapter two, it's a great passage on that on that concept at least. Well, anyway, we've got these questions out there. No one's calling. The lights are. Uh, the lights are dim there. There's no blinking green light for us to respond to. If you'd like to call us, 340-9585. 340-9585. Was there anything, Jacob, that in particular that you wanted to maybe talk well, about? This uh, week? Would you like to talk about a really controversial topic? Oh, no, not us. We always avoid those, right? Uh, well, uh, at any rate... Um Second I? Kings, I know. Second Kings chapter 10? Yeah! <laughs> okay. Uh, Soapy... Can you say in English the word cannibal? Cannibal. There you go. Now, I know you speak Spanish. How do you say cannibal in Spanish? I think it's cannibal. Ah, wow. Someone, someone might correct me if they speak better than uh, I do. Well, Spanish. okay. L- look over at Second Kings uh, chapter 10, verse 20. All right. I got it. Okay. And look at, now this is. This uh, is our old friend Jehu. Jehu. Or, I like this guy. Yeah, is this yeah, where yeah. we get the expression about when we talk about Yehus? See, oh, some old Yehus came over and you know, talk kind of wild guys. And I think in, in, in uh, Jonathan Swift's uh, tale of, uh, oh, who's the guy who got Jonathan? Uh, Gulliver. Gulliver's Travels. Gulliver. Didn't they have Yehus? They and, did. And they were kind of wild guys. Well, this I think they're getting that from this guy named Jehu in the right. Bible. Right. Don't you think? Uh, could be. I know that's one thing people don't know about. You remember the old westerns where the barmaid would come up and slap a guy on the chest, some cowboy, and say, "You big galoot." Yeah. Uh huh. Galoot is a Hebrew word. Is that? 
And what that means is... They were speaking Yiddish. (laughs) Yeah. And what it actually means is, and people are using that term, and the irony is, that means like somebody that's so just about to be born naive, doesn't know anything... A little, uh, a little unknowing about everything. So, and I said, you big loot. In other words, you know, you're not bright. You don't know anything. You unknowing big about everything, huh? Yeah. Well, I this, thought that was this enough. Jehu guy was pretty a wild character, and he, yeah. he put the Kaidas on Ahab and Jezebel and all of their children. And I mean, he was, he was really a wild fellow. Right. But this is during his time, right? Yes. And he was going to because we all know Ahab was actually had converted because of his wife, obviously. And his wife, Ahab's wife, was uh, Jezebel. And so he was a worshiper of, in Hebrew, it's Baal, or Baal, I guess, in English. And But it's just like you say in Spanish, and listen how close it is, and would you say it in Spanish again? Cannibal. Cannibal. Okay, so you hear that word in Spanish, it's very close to the Hebrew, Baal. Yes. At any rate, now, it says in 1020, this Jehu was saying, well, arrange a festival for Baal or Baal. Well, hold on. <laughs> um, <clears throat> that is a festival of Baal was about eating, say, grape juice and something else. And the idea was, is it's a cannibal, cannibal. And the idea was that the grape juice would actually turn to real blood, that the bread would actually turn to real flesh, and they would cannibalistically have this festival. Mm. And this is an old, ancient, pagan religion where they actually ate God. And it was it comes from cannibal, or cannibal, festival of Baal. Well, the concept of eating God was was present in a number of the pagan religions. Yes, it was. Of that era. Of, even of, even, the, even the Greeks had the idea of eating God-eaters, God yes. Uh-huh. Uh, uh, uh. Well, so this it, was, when Jehu is doing that here, of course, in case someone doesn't know the passage, uh, he was his cunning plan was to destroy all the worshipers of, of Baal, of Baal. So he, he created a festival, a party for them, like he was going to honor them so that they would all show up. And when they did show up, then uh, he made sure they wore one of the special robes that he prepared for them. And then they could go through, and easily they did. They went uh-huh. through and killed them. Right. And he was uh, trying to... I told you he was a crazy guy. He was, yeah, he was trying to get rid of all the bell worshippers. But what's fascinating is it's the word cannibal. And that is actually translating grape juice to blood crackers or something else to flesh and you're eating god and it's actually we're familiar with the word cannibal it's the, it's actually what it says right here it's the festival of baal the festival of baal a lot of people don't realize what the festival called for well you know we were just talking about a while ago some of the things that jesus said that that were so very difficult complicated for some Jewish listeners to hear. And I remember when Jesus talked about this himself during the time of his life, he, he said, this, uh, this is my... He told, unless you eat of my flesh and drink of my blood, you will have no part. Yeah. And, they, and it scandalized his disciples. And if, in fact, if you read that passage in, in its context, 
I wish I knew where it was right it's off the It's in end. John, and it's, uh, I believe it's chapter 6 or chapter 9. And when he says, unless you do this and this, and they said to him, whoa, that's a hard one. And he lost a lot of his followers. Oh, yeah. If you notice in the passage, it yeah. said a lot of them stopped following him right. after that. And even Jesus challenged his own right. disciples. He said, will you two go away? Right. And that's oh, when yeah. when they said, "Well, we, where would we go? You're the one that has the words of eternal life, yeah, and so exactly, on." But yeah. there was there was something intentional, I think, about oh, what yeah. Jesus did there. Yeah, he knew what he was doing. But um, but at the same time, you see that this that that tension about how Jesus presented himself and taught about himself to to a Jewish mind that was something they had been taught for centuries. Jews, you don't, no, Jews, you don't worship God. They a man never. Is God. Jews don't drink blood or eat blood, and they certainly would never eat a human being. That's right. That is well. Well, let's go to our phones. Gilbert has called us in, called us up, and we want to uh, give attention to you, Gilbert. How are you tonight? Uh, can you hear me? I we hear you just fine. You're in traffic, I think. You kind of went out a little bit. Okay, I'll speak up louder. I hope you can hear us. We hear okay. you. We hear you loud and clear. Did you want to answer one of our questions? Okay, I want to ask you a question that, uh, about when Jesus comes back with uh, riding on a white horse uh, and his followers. Is that does that mean that we're going to rule and reign with him, or is that like a, this preacher calls it a metaphor? What do you think? Are we going to rule and reign with Jesus during a thousand-year millennium? During a thousand-year reign. Okay. Uh, do you want to hang up and listen to the answer, or do you want to hang on? No, I'm going to hang up, and I'll listen to it. All right. We'll talk about it. Thank Bye. you for calling, Gilbert. I think that's more in your belly work, Soapy. Oh, you think it is? Well, I, I was just fixing to say, I think this is talking about from the book of the Revelation. I don't think there's any doubt about that. And we have this imagery of... Uh, of the, but now you have mentioned this image of of uh, Messiah returning on this white horse, and you it said says an, uh, on name? his thigh is written. Uh-huh. It's not his thigh. When you're sitting down, your prayer shawl is resting on your thigh, and what's actually is talking about. It's not. It's not tattooed. It's not written. Nobody drew on his leg. It's talking about he's sitting down, he's wearing his prayer shirt, the bottom of his prayer shirt. It was basically saying, King of kings, Lord of lords, referring, you know, to God. But he's wearing his prayer shirt. That's why it's written on the side. It's not actually written on his thigh, but written on his prayer shirt, and it's, he's sitting down. All right. I'm looking at this passage. I'm, I'm, I'm hoping I'm finding the right one. Um, uh, it's a great white throne. I'm trying to find it. I, I, I'm going to try to answer Gilbert's question just straight up, direct and clear. Gilbert, my answer is, to be very honest with you, I don't know. I, I don't know. I have been raised all my life as I grew up in the in the faith and I grew up in the scriptures, with the idea coming that uh, there would there would be. In terms of the end times, we are living already in the end times. Ever since the ascension of Jesus, this is what we would call the end times. These are the final era, the final stage. Um, So all of these have been the end times. But someday we know that Messiah will return. And there are various scenarios for that taken from the scriptures, from Ezekiel, from Daniel, from Revelation, from uh, Thessalonians, from Jesus' words in Matthew 24, uh, you take all of these passages, and people have mapped out their scenarios. 
generally speaking, I think the most popular view today is that there will be um, either premillennialist, uh, I'm sorry, uh, pre-tribulation or, or mid-tribulation or post-trib. There are going to be these seven years of tribulation. Um, some people believe that the Messiah comes first and the church is snatched up or uh, the... Um, I'm looking for the word. It'll come to me in a moment. But the church is taken out of the earth. We go up to meet the Lord. And then there are seven years of great tribulation. And then at the end of the tribulation, when Israel uh, is being threatened, uh, with this a million-man army from the east and that sort of thing, that Christ and, and his people return, uh, save the day, establish his earthly reign for a thousand years. That's some the millennial, the thousand-year reign of Christ for a thousand years, and then coming the uh, great white throne judgment and so on. That is essentially what most of us grow up with. And we're either pre-trib, meaning Jesus comes back before the tribulation begins, or some mid-trib, that there are three and a half years of tribulation, then followed by three and a half years of judgment. And in the middle of the tribulation, Jesus comes back and, and uh, raptures, that's the word I was looking for, snatch up his people, catch up his people. Or some say post-trib, at the end of the seven years of tribulation, that Christ returns and establishes this thousand-year reign. I, I really don't know. I, I'll, well, I've gone through them I, all. And, and I've I'm not, them all. I can't take a position on that, but I can suggest why it's a horse and why it's white. Okay, you you can do that. But uh, let me finish just to let oh, my, sorry, finish up my I don't know. Yeah. Okay. Is basically I've I've looked at them. It's not because I haven't looked at them. Uh, I just don't think that God has made it crystal clear exactly what's going to happen. If it were crystal clear, I think there would be just so much unanimity that we would all see it, we would know it. But I I think all of the messages in the New Testament, Gilbert and and others that talk to us about Christ's second coming. From Matthew 24, when Jesus himself talks about it, and every time, it is a valid thing to look for Jesus' return, but we're not to get caught up in the what hour, what day, and so on. That's not the point. The point, the point is always be ready, be active, be busy, serving the Lord, uh, honoring the Lord. Don't, and, and so if we get that point, then however it happens, we're doing the right thing. So that's where I've come to today. I, I, um, I don't focus a lot on what things are going to be like. I can't help but think that we seem to be coming toward the end of time because I don't see how much tighter the rubber band can be twisted and, and endure. I mean, there's so much tension and so much uh, that I don't know if this old world could take much more uh, of this kind of tension. But could go on for another hundred or thousand years, but uh, the point is no, it could to be ready. No, it couldn't. You don't think it could? Oh right, well, we'll come back and talk about that. When we come back, we've got to take our break now. The music has come up, as Jacob says. And when we come back, Jacob will talk about what was it? Uh, well, I was the white say horse, the horse, and white the white horse, and why it and, can't uh, be. And another the Jews have years. actually had the ancient teaching, ancient teaching that the world will be here. For 6,000 years. We'll talk about it when we come back. Don't go away. The Bible Live Quiz Show will return.
remember Dr. Bright used to say, Dr. Bill Bright, the founder and president of Campus Crusade for Christ, great godly man, gone on to glory now, but uh, he used to talk about if we could only let people know how much God loved them, our, they would be our, crashing through the doors of our churches to come and worship the true and living God if they could only know how much God cares and loves for the, loves them and desires the very best for them. And uh, that's part of the reason why the Four Spiritual Law booklet, which Dr. Bright uh, wrote, a simple little presentation of the gospel, uh, which, by the way, has been reprinted about two billion times now. And I really mean that, B, uh, billion with a B, and translated into thousands of lang- uh, over a thousand languages. Uh, that's the reason it starts with the phrase, God loves you and offers a wonderful plan for your life. Uh, it's uh, a great message in those words. Well, we are back. This is the Bible Live Quiz Show. We've got someone on the line, and that is Esther. Esther. Let's go visit with Esther first, and then we'll get back to what Jacob's um, uh, going to tell us about the white horse and about uh, when Jesus is returning. I think Jacob's got, the, the Jewish thought has, a, has an answer to that question, or at least a, they weigh in with a, an opinion. Hi, Esther. How are you tonight? Hi, fine. Thank you. I didn't mean to interrupt Jacob, and certainly I want to hear about the white horse. Oh, you're fine, though. We, we've got some more time. <laughs> okay. I, the caller that you had uh, was curious about the Scripture passage that said we would rule and reign with Christ. The millennial reign, and, yes. Yeah, in the millennial reign. And I don't know, like you said, Sophie, I don't know. Who knows? But one thing uh, that comes up very frequently is people try to read more into the text than what it actually says. And to rule and reign with him, uh, I would say the operative word might be with him. So each of us rules and reigns in our own limited domain in our house our neighborhood, whatever, right? Interesting thought. I, I like, I've not thought of that before, Esther, but I, yeah. it sounds right to me. It makes sense Wouldn't to me. Wouldn't it be fascinating that if we were to actually come into line with him, uh, what his edicts are, the rules and laws of the kingdom, and oh. actually rule and reign with him? I try to, I try to imagine sometimes, <laughs> Esther, I try to imagine what glorious thing that would be if each that of our wills... Great. From the simplest of us to the greatest and the greatest mind, if our wills were aligned with his, what yes, glory sir. that would be. That would be so Absolutely. amazing. Yeah, I and like your concept of reigning with him, though. That preposition yeah. is very important. Yes, absolutely. I think that, like I said, is the operative word. Anyway, I'm going to hang up now. Thank you. And, yes, I want the prize. Okay. The prize. Hang, on <laughs> and, hang on and talk to uh, John and give him a little bit of information, all right? Okay. okay. We'll thank, that you. thank you, Esther. Esther. Thank you so much. Thank you. Bye-bye. All right. Uh, okay. Real quick, I just ask a question. You know, as the story goes in the text of the New Testament, it says he came riding a donkey first. Actually, there, that is a, even a Jewish messianic prophecy because it comes from, I believe, Zechariah. Zechariah chapter and, nine. Uh, yep. And he is considered riding a donkey because that's a that's a, a beast of peace. But the horse, of course, is an article of war. And uh, so that's obviously, and white means that he, the purity of his war. Yes, and I believe the passage that I found that it was early in the book of Revelation uh, that Messiah is seen 
uh, riding this white horse, and and the his name on the uh, I'm not sure if it's his name or something written on it on his thigh, as you said, Jacob. Uh, it's a picture of um, his prayer shawl, right? Uh, that's what I take. Was that it the idea? Yeah. So that is there. Uh, tell us what you tell them what you were telling me about the Jewish view, because I I was telling you that, you know, I don't, I'm not one of those who's locked into the idea that Jesus has to return uh, in a certain date or time. I mean, I know in the mind of God He knows these things. Uh, I suspect that Jesus' return has something to do with the harvest. When the, when the uh, when there is a law of diminishing returns on the harvest and there's more uh, wickedness and evil, as we saw in the times of Genesis there, in the times of Noah, uh, as evil multiplies and complicates and, and that there is a less and less return uh, on the harvest, uh, the message of the gospel, uh-huh. then I, I somehow think that his return is related somehow to the harvest. But at, at the same time, uh, I, I don't know when that is. I don't have a clear sense myself. And I guess it could be you know, 100 or even 1,000 more years. Uh, the point is, is I think in almost all of those, when the Bible talks about the end times, the warning, even sometimes it actually even mentions it, the real important point is not when it's going to happen and that. It's be ready whenever it happens. For us to be busy in the, in the, in, in, with the, living for God and witnessing for God and loving others and, and obeying the Lord and, and honoring God, that, if we're busy, that, that's, that's the point of the warnings. Uh, that's the point of him telling us he's going to return and be ready. And if we're ready, then it doesn't matter if it is 100 years or 50. But you think that maybe there's something to do with the, the Jews thinking that human history was only going to last 6,000 years? One of the ancient understandings of the Jews, ancient, is that the world would be here on a pre-programmed date for a maximum of 6,000 years. And you know, in, even in yeah. the New Testament, they say each day is like a 1,000 years. The Jews count the calendar from Adam. So, in the Jewish calendar, this is the year 5,775. Now, if indeed the Jews are right from this ancient teaching, that six days or 6,000 years, then it could be in the next 30 seconds, next minute, or it must occur within the next at date of 225 years. Because so we're in, we're in the Jewish it, calendar year 5775? That is correct. And so... Uh, and actually, it'll be uh, 76 shortly. But uh, but, the but point, who's counting, right? But who's counting? But see, they count from Adam. You know, as the Christians, they count from A.D. Anno Domini, which is after Christ. Uh-huh. Uh, they count the calendar, which we all use in our society as being uh, that calendar. Yeah. The Jewish calendar is actually starts from Adam. And so they understood, and, they, and this is an ancient teaching. It's fascinating, and I always think whether it's right or wrong, we need to pay attention to the guys, I think, that were closest to the date this all began. <laughs> That's true. The, the closer you get to the origin, the, the better it is. So at any rate, it's, it's sometime between the next second and that, 225 That's years. fascinating. If it would come tonight, I would, nothing would make me happier. I I, I do confess that I'm ready for the Lord to come any time, and I want Him to come. I desire to see Him come and see Him glorified and enter into glory. Uh, I think that's just a wonderful thing. But the harvest is wonderful as well. That's that's you the know, thing. Sophie, I meant to do this earlier, but you know, uh, 
last week, and when I make an error and I discover my error, I'd prefer for me to have the opportunity to fix it rather than somebody else point it out to me because I, I want you. to rob somebody of that pleasure. <laughs> <laughs> At any rate, I said last week we were talking about when the page of the New Testament appeared in the Bible. I said I thought it was in the 1800s in America. I got the country wrong. I not only got the date wrong, I got the century wrong. Uh, but did I did. Did you get anything at all right? In the <laughs> I did. I did. I okay. got it that it was inserted. Okay. And it was inserted. The first time I can locate, I did a lot of research on this, is apparently in 1611 version. Prior to that, it had been something of that nature had occurred in the Catholic Bible. Now, what's fascinating is prior to that, it was always listed as, uh, listen how close it comes. So it says it was listed, the gospel of the good news according to Mark, Matthew, Luke, John. But it's always the gospel of the good news according to. They didn't separate. It was, as you were suggesting last week, a continuation of the, the whole Bible. Okay, yeah. But when it started appearing was a demarcation, and that was put in to say, oh, that's that broke off and it started. It was actually suggested originally by a guy named Marcion, who was in France, and he actually wanted to do away with the Old Testament entirely. Later he was denounced and drummed out of the Catholic Church because they did not accept his teachings and they thought it was heresy. Also, I want to tell you something interesting. If I may, this is very interesting. As if that was not interesting, that was that was really insightful. And was that 1611? Is that King James? Is yes, that yes. Okay. Uh -huh. And and anyway, here and the first King James 1611, and the second one, I think, uh, in uh, the second issue of the King James, also contained what the Catholics called the Apocrypha books. Uh -huh. So the Cath the Christians, the Protestants, shall we say, always had access to those books. Now they were not considered. Uh, Holy Scripture. Canonical or whatever. Uh -huh. yeah. But they were considered uh, good for teaching and history and instruction. But they were always there. And in 1885 is when they were removed from the Protestant Bible. So a lot of people say the Catholics added them. Not so. The Protestants removed them in 1885. Now, I do want to tell you something that's startling. In... in Catch these dates. Let me ask you this uh -huh. just real quick before you. Don't lose your thought, though. Okay? No, no, no. But 1885, what happened then? Uh, was there some kind of a uh, was there some sort of a yes. council? Was there, there was a council, like we've heard of the Council of the Carthaginian, the Trent, Nicaea, so Trent. Well, they had another council, the British Bible Society and the International Bible Society met, and they decided to remove those books, those middle books, the Deuterocanicals, the Apocrypha books. So those were removed. That's when they were moved in 18... So that's when it happened. But as far as it being demarcated, it is actually occurring at another day. As Old and New Testament. Uh -huh. That was the thing we were discussing. Yes. And and I, 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 before, I thought that, to me, was so illuminating. And I am going to try personally... I mean, I don't invite anybody else to do this. I don't think it's in... in it, it's not for me to tell anybody to do it. But I think I am going to try to find a different way of talking about, uh, I mean, I think I understand the idea of the Old Covenant, the Old Testament, the New Testament, but, but on the, the, unif the unity of the Scriptures from beginning to end is more important to me. And if that is seen as dividing them, uh, some even in terms of importance or accuracy or validity or whatever, I don't want to present that idea because I do think that 
It's all the Word of God. Well, you can see why I went before that. It actually was the term, the gospel of the good news according to. Yes. It was like an inclusion and continuation, what you suggested. Yeah. And then after that, it created this division and demarcation. I think it came as a part of the whole idea of covenant theology, where you look at the uh, the Adamic covenant, the Noahic covenant, the Abrahamic, and then the, what was it, uh, I'm missing somebody in there, Noah, Abraham, and the Davidic. Uh, I think I missed one in there somewhere. But when you get into these eras and God's dealings with mankind, with his people, uh, they divided it up into what is called these covenant eras. And that became to, became a kind of an important thing. And then we got into this, the, the New Testament became seen as, seen as a new covenant uh, as opposed to the, and of course it's spoken of in some ways. Uh, in the book of Hebrews, there is a contrast made. But I don't think it had... Actually, it, that's one of the fascinating things. As uh, I've known this, but I, I had to refresh myself. Uh, certain books. Um, as an example, um, let's see. Uh, the letter of Hebrews, James, Second John, Third John, Jude, Revelation, was in and out of the Christian Bible yeah. over the centuries. Sometimes it's taken out, sometimes put in. It's yeah. out, it's in. Interesting, now, isn't here's it? Here's yeah. one of the most interesting facts. Yeah, yeah. Well, in, let's go to your point about. Yeah. What, uh, well, I wanted to talk about the in the year four. Oh yes. Yeah. In the year 400 A.D. 400 A.D. That's okay. after Jesus. The, and before Muhammad, right? <laughs> about no, about 300 years before yeah, Muhammad. 700 yeah. Is, yeah, a lot of people don't realize Islam came along 300 or 700 years, approximately 700 years after Christianity. Right. Anyway, in the year 400 A.D., the New Testament, the New Testament was actually in over 500 languages. Wow. Wow. In just 400 years. In 400 A.D., in over 500 languages. Now, here's the zinger. Within the next hundred years, by 500 A.D., it was reduced down to one language, and that was Latin. Is that a... Yes, that is a fact. And you're talking about the gospel... I'm talking about what you would call the New Testament, yeah. (laughs) And what happened to all those extant copies? Well, uh, uh, they're either burnt, destroyed, bought, whatever, accumulated... The reason is, is that, you know, the Catholic Church wanted a Latin to be the official text. And I don't think that it was all intended to be 100% evil. I think that they knew that a lot of people were somewhat illiterate at that time. Now, the Jews were always taught to, frankly, the one reason I think the Jews have been relatively successful is because they've always taught the children to read. Right. Well, a lot of times a lot of people weren't literate. So the Catholic Church actually was wanting to have a group of scholars that could read, could understand, and they would teach. And, of course, we all know that it got corrupted. Uh, but So it, that was 400. It was already translated into... Uh, over. over. Five, like five, like 530 languages. 400 A.D., over 500 languages. Yes. And then after another 100 years... It was down to one language. It was down language. to existing in, one, in Latin. That is correct. That was somewhere around uh, 500 A.D. That is correct. And then it didn't start being mass-produced and published until the mid-1400s. Well, what happened is in the, the Christian Gutenberg's, world, there are, printing press. Yes, there are the Gutenberg Bible, the Geneva Bible, and, of course, you have famous Christian heroes of, the, of their literature, their, and, their Bible. And during that in, in, interve- intervening time, it was 
Handwritten, hand copied, is that the idea? Yeah. And there was, uh, of course, you know, you have in the Christian world, you have John Hus, you have Tyndale, you have uh, several people. Listen, there's, you can Google this. There's a guy named, last name, Lineacre, L-I-N-A-C-R-E. He was sent to Rome for, uh, to read the original text in Greek. This letter still exists. You can Google and find it. Last name, L-I-N-A-C-R-E, Lineacre. Uh-huh. And he went down there. He learned to read Greek. He went down there and he read it in Greek. And he wrote the letter back. It still exists. And he said, either we are not reading the Gospels or we are not Christians. Because it had been so corrupted over the centuries. Um that what happened is there were many different versions. Jerome, a great scholar, in uh, 382, actually translated it from Greek into Latin. And over the next couple centuries, in, in Latin, different people who were committed to their own views and different thoughts, rather than the sincerity and integrity of the text, would corrupt it. And there were several different versions of the Bible that became known as the Vulgate in the Catholic Latin world. Uh-huh. The common. Mm-hmm. Common, yeah. it means common. And so what happened is is some famous heroes in Christian church, as like say Tyndale, you can Google actually and find out that there was a society called the White Horse Society. All the people were killed. Yeah, I know, White Horse, isn't that funny? <laughs> Come back to the theme uh, of the White Horse. Yeah. And... Uh, and but what's funny is is that there was uh, only one person that was not killed, and that's a guy named Cloverdale. And of course, you've got Tyndale and several other people that had fought to get the Bible into their language. And actually, um, there is—I'm uh, sorry—the other name escapes me—but he was the one that translated before Martin Luther. Martin Luther actually used his Bible to translate it into German. So Martin Luther gets credit, but actually he was using another fellow's translation. Yeah, and I know his name too, but it doesn't come to me. In fact, is I've been trying to remember his name for a good while here because there, there is an entire, I think there's an entire ministry named for him today. There are still missionaries who go into these, uh, the 1040 window, for example, into the uh, jungles of Brazil and, and into the, the rainforest jungles in Latin America and so on. And they go and find unreached people groups, and they live with them to learn their language so that specifically mm-hmm. so that they can translate the scriptures into the language of those people. That, uh, and I can't remember the name. Maybe one of our listeners will remember. Yeah. Well, and actually, I do want to make the point is, so I did get the country and the date wrong, but I got the topic right. So I apologize for getting the date and the country wrong, but I did get a fact that it was inserted, and it was change to give that demarcation yeah separation. well that's good i'm glad you corrected that and uh, uh apology accepted okay. <laughs> on behalf of the me and our 10 listeners <laughs> we thank you for that apology jacob that's that great yeah we do want to make the set the record straight when we can that's for sure I in wish fact i, could I will tell you something fascinating uh-huh. the book of daniel does you know in today's text has 12 chapters originally it had 15 Three of the chapters were taken out and included into the Apocrypha. Now, the reason, in the course of an Apocrypha, is taken out those chapters are lost. The reason for that, Jerome was, Jerome was the first one to include them. Uh-huh. And he included them, but with an asterisk. And I've so actually, there was a Daniel chapter 13, 14, and 15? That is correct. 
and they were in the became separate books in the middle books, the Apocrypha. And the reason that Jerome he included them, and he said, but he could not find them in Hebrew or even Aramaic. So he would put an asterisk, and he say they should be read for teaching, sure. and history, instruction. But he could he didn't give them the same status because he couldn't verify. Because his rule was, if I can't find it from the Hebrew. I really don't think that it should be classified as scripture, but I'll classify it as tradition and things we read to help us understand things. Exactly. I think the criteria, if I remember, I, I shouldn't be saying these things off the top of my head, but when, when these councils, when these various councils meet and talk about the scriptures and in terms of the canon, it wasn't just a bunch of people coming down and saying, oh, this is Bible and that's not. It was, there really were, uh, there were criteria that they applied that, uh, Someone who, uh, for example, I know some of the passages, some of them who, who either knew Jesus or firsthand or, or eyewitness or firsthand knew the person they were writing for, like John Mark writing for Peter, for example, in the Gospel of Mark. Uh, what else was it? There were, there were some criteria that they applied that they picked the books that were universally, already universally recognized. Yeah. Uh, that generally speaking across the people of God at the time of that era, that time, these were the books that were universally acknowledged and, and accepted as uh, authoritative, as opposed to some that were maybe accepted in one area, one region, but not so much in another. That's true. Uh, that was some of these. Would you be interested in knowing the rationale? Uh, I'm sure there's other thoughts yeah, and sure, religious sure. reasons for sure. why Sunday became the day of worship for. Christians as opposed to Saturday, for, like for the Jews. And this, the, the, to me, I, I'm always struck by this was not haphazard. And this was, and, and some people would use different reasons, saying, well, we can find that Paul was meeting on Sundays or the first day of the week, that kind of thing. And I understand it. But the, one of the rationales that I found years ago is this, and it's very carefully reasoned. Uh, and it was actually, of course, among the Catholics because they were preceded the Protestants. Uh-huh. But here's what it said. Uh, they said they argued for a long time, and these are good people trying to figure out the right answer. But they said, if the resurrection occurred on a late on a Saturday, and everybody knows, I mean, the truth is it occurred at dusk on Saturday, because for the Jews, at sunset becomes the next day, or you might call it Sunday. But if that occurred, do we consider that one event, and then later Jesus' ascension to heaven as a second event, or do we consider it as all one event, the resurrection and him being out, you know, uh, raised for ascension until we get to the ascension? Is that one event or two events? It was finally settled. They were, they were what, 40 or 50 days apart, 40 days apart? Uh, from Passover to his ascension would have been, and 40 days uh, uh, well, it's got to be 50 because it's called Pentecost. Okay. Pentecost, no, Pentecost is, is when the Holy Spirit the came. Holy Spirit comes down. I think it right. was forty that the ascension. Uh, well, it does say forty days, but you got to have fifty total for the Holy Spirit to come down. Just like that's the day right. the Ten Commandments yeah. come down. Okay, so but what's fascinating is is that they they finally settled on it's one event, and if he resurrected, let's say uh, at dusk on Saturday, which technically would be right on the line of Sunday, then and you view it as one event, and he. W- you count it as one event, and he ascended to heaven. That would be on a Sunday. So, therefore, they began calling it, in the Catholic world, the Lord's Day. 
And if you look, that's actually what they call it, the Lord's Day, Jesus, and that's who they're referring to. Anno Domini. Huh? The so it's the, Lord, the Lord's yeah. Day. And they finally settled it was one event, not two events. Yeah, to this day, I have folks who call the program and, and ask about the whole idea of why we uh, worship now on the first day of the week instead of on the seventh, you know, the Sabbath and so on. Mm-hmm. And again, I have to confess, I'm a little over my head with that. I, I Maybe it's too deep for my little Apache mind, but I, I'm just going to try to get my heart right. If my heart is right, I, and I'm seeking to apply the, the sabbatical principle that we need a day set aside to rest and to worship God, I, I, I think one day might do as well as another. I don't know. For us Gentiles, that passes, right? Yeah, I think that's fine. See you next week, folks, here on the Bible Live Quiz Show. And it's brought to you by Crew Military Ministry. Mailing address is P.O. Box 18888. That's Box 18888. San Antonio, Texas, 78218. Hear the entire Bible every year on The Bible Live, weeknights at 9.30 on this great station. Then join Sophie every Sunday evening at 9 o'clock for fun, inspiration, and valuable prizes on The, the Bible, Bible Live Quiz Show. Visit our website, BibleLive.com. That's BibleLive.com for more information about Sophie and The Bible Live broadcast. You may also order materials at the website and make tax-deductible donations to help crew military minister to our military personnel and broadcast the entire Bible every year to America and the world. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.